Hi, this is Tolkien class number 13. Today we are going to look at the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth, and then delve into the greatest of Tolkien's stories, the tale of Beren and Luthien. Let us move on. I feel, uh, on, the, on the one hand, of course, that you read two chapters for today, the story of the ruin of Beleriand and the, 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 the fall of Fingolfin, uh, and Beren and Luthien. Uh, and I'm kind of going to shortchange uh, the, the downfall of Fingolfin almost entirely. I want to talk about it a little bit because it's a really powerful scene, um, certainly the, the duel between him and Melkor. Um, but I'm also not going to apologize for it too much because the story of Baron and Luthien, it's very important. But what do we see, just first starting off there, what do we see in the duel? When Fingolfin charges in and all of the hosts of, 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 of Morgoth flee before him, as he comes and pounds on the gates and challenges Morgoth to single combat. And then that great sentence, and Morgoth came. Right? I mean, he's... what do we learn here? What do we see here in this scene? Tell me what's important, what's interesting. There? Well, I think Morgoth was greatly afraid of losing face because, like, it, like, mentions that he's pretty scared, but, like, you know, the orc's like, oh, yeah, he's going he's to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he he's afraid. He's afraid. Now it's not that he, you know, has calculated and actually believes he's gonna lose. It's not like he thinks he's going into this fight as the underdog. I mean we don't want to exaggerate it too much, but yes, he alone of the Valar knows fear. He uh he's he's a little worried. He's a little worried about this. Even though I mean, we see him towering over Fingolfin and his you know, his hammer is making huge pits in the ground as Fingolfin is dashing aside. It's not like any kind of a fair fight, but he alone of the Valar knows fear. And also shame, right? Because the reason, he, he, he doesn't want to come out and fight him. And one would think, hey, why doesn't he just say, um, no, could somebody please go out and squash him like the little bug that he is and bring his corpse before me? I mean, he could do that, right? But he doesn't do that. And the reason he doesn't do that is because he doesn't want to lose face in the eyes of his, of his captains. Because he is afraid and he thinks that they know that he is afraid and that they're going to believe that he was a coward by not going out to fight him. So he feels that he must accept this challenge for the sake of his own dignity, for the sake of his own position. Again, which means he is aware of shame. Remember one of the things we talked about back with Smith of Wooten Major, and we see it again with the Valar, the confidence that the great and good have in both their greatness and goodness? Right, the kind of condescension, the kind of humility that Iluvatar shows, that the Queen of Fairy shows in Smith of Wooten Major, that the King of Fairy shows in Smith of Wooten Major, they don't get all bothered about insults. They don't go around, you know, they, they, they're, they're absolutely secure in themselves and in their own power. Morgoth is not. He feels self-conscious. He is ashamed. Uh, and, and, and therefore takes offense and worries about what other people are going to think of him in ways that the great and good never do. Jordan? If we remember correctly, you, um, during Mythopoeia, said we would discuss the Iron Crown-ness of Morgoth. Yeah. I talked about the Iron Crown a little bit uh, in class session 11, I think. Um, yeah, when we were talking about sort of the paradigm of evil and evil people. We talked about it then there, and we'll talk about it again when we get to the downfall of... Morgoth at the end of the Quenta Silmarillion. Um, pay close attention to what happens to the golden crown. Or golden crown. 
was the golden scepter. The iron crown uh, at the very end because uh, it's extremely awesome and wonderfully fitting. Um, but yes, I did talk about that in, the, in, the, in one of the classes last week. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I had a question. Um, you wounded Morgoth with seven wounds and seven times Morgoth gave a cry of anguish. Is there another meaning to seven? Like in- Never stated, um, but there are clearly some numbers that are significant. Um, this, I think, is true not just here. I mean, here Tolkien seems to be reflecting not any kind of particular numerological theories that he himself has, and there were lots of them. Um, I mean, if you are interested, for instance, to read about medieval numerology, I would recommend to you uh, the uh, Macrobius's commentary on the Dream of Scipio, one of the great classics of the Middle Ages, which is uh, pretty boring and nobody really reads it anymore. But it was a hugely influential work throughout the Middle Ages. And, uh, and man, he'd spend so long going through like the exact significance in various contexts of different numbers. And they, they were all over that kind of thing. Um, here, I guess I would in some ways go back to what Tolkien says about myth. Clearly, when you read fairy stories, when you read folk tales, when you read mythology, there is clearly a trend of some numbers which are significant, um, which come up again and again. And even if you don't point to, and Tolkien is actually often pretty good about this, not trying to spell out here is what is significant behind that, but rather sort of evoking this mythic thing. There is something mythic about the number seven and about the number three and about the number nine. Um, And, you know, he he never explains it. He never never gives us any real backstory behind that. But we can clearly see those patterns emerging. Um, So that's my way of not answering that question, but trying to explain how I'm not being merely evasive by not answering that question. Have I succeeded in that? I'm not sure. Um, Notice also that he, I mean, he does cry out in pain. Um, it hurts him. He is, at this point, bound to his physical body in ways that the Valar are not usually because he has lowered himself. He has lessened himself through the exertion of his own evil will. And so he not only knows... His, the fear that he knows that the other Valar don't know is for a good reason because he can't dematerialize in the way that they can. He cannot unclothe himself. And so he is bound to this body with this, and which body gives him pain. His hand still really hurts from the Silmarils, where the Silmarils burned him. The iron crown still really hurts him all the time that has the Silmarils on it. And it is a burden and a weariness to him continually. And now he's got these six very annoying wounds in his feet and ankles that are going to bug him from now on. And he gets another wound here. Yeah, his face. Thorondor the eagle comes down and scratches up his face as he's about to take and, you know, break Fingolfin's body up and cast it to his wolves. Uh, and so now he's got, you know, he's got these nasty, like, irrit- irritating scratches on his face. Too. He is, pain is part of his life from here on out. Pain, and uh, remember it said when he was talking about the, the burning from the Silmarils, the pain and the anger of the pain. Um, because, of course, the weakness, the fear that is associated with that pain, with that suffering that he is enduring, makes him really angry because it injures, of course, not just his body, but it injures his pride uh, to, to think and to, to sort of to recognize his own weakness in those ways. What happens to Fingolfin's body? It is not indeed cast to his wolves. 
Can tell? The eagles bring the body to the mountaintop, and there's a... Around it. Yeah, Turgon comes. It's right next to Gondolin. So Turgon comes and goes up and erects a tomb. Uh, and it is, it remains inviolate for, for a while, until the fall of Gondolin. But anyway, for a while, it will, remain, it will remain inviolate. This is one of several places where we find grave sites which are significant, um, which sometimes are given power in themselves. In Baron and Luthien, we get another one, right? What important gravesite do we get in the story of Baron and Luthien? Finrod. Yes, good. Finrod's. Finrod is buried on top of the isle where the, 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 the fortress he built once was before Sauron took it over and then Luthien blasted it, right? And his burial, in his burial, the isle is cleansed and evil creatures fear to go near it anymore. Often, the grave sites of good people, good and powerful people, will have this kind of effect, uh, this kind of power, even afterwards. Memorials are interesting. Memorials are important. Um, and you know, so watch. There will be at the end of the story of Turin Turambar, we will see the most interesting and the most important, I think, of all of the. Well, actually, I think there's pretty good evidence to say that it's the most important grave site um, in any of of any of the grave sites in the Silmarillion. So watch out for that as we move forward. Yeah, Jordan? Um, considering Tolkien's use of the word, I'm not sure whether I should bring this up, but I think since I'm not sure, that's a good reason to bring it up. The concept of hallowed ground, for example, in like a, a church or a church graveyard. Yeah. Um, the word hallowed is used several times in the Silmarillion, but never of, never of ground. Um, it's used when something is made holy, usually by the Valar, as, for instance, Varda hallows the Silmarils. And it is because they are hallowed jewels, not because they're beautiful, amazing works of art that Feanor made. That's not the reason that they burn Morgoth. They burn Morgoth because they've been hallowed by Varda. Um, And therefore, they burn him because he is evil and his intentions are evil, and they are sacred, they are holy, they are pure. They have been made holy and made pure by her. Hallow is a transitive verb in that way. Um, so sometimes something is hallowed by a person, by an event. Um, it's not, certainly not the same as a kind of designation. I mean, when you're talking about churchyards, for, in- for instance, and hallowed ground, um, you're talking about a place which has been set aside and consecrated uh, in certain ways. And certainly there's no kind of attachment to territory in that way, um, in the hallowing that we see happening uh, during, during the Silmarillion. Um, but... I think it's not inappropriate. I mean, with the burial of Finrod, we have essentially the isle hallowed by his burial there. Um, So it kind of goes in a different direction. It's not that his burial or his body is made sacred by the dirt that it happens to be in. And I don't want to, I don't mean to say that slightingly, but it works the other way around. Um, His, because that is his resting place, um, it is made hallowed, just as Fingolfin's resting place does the same thing. There. Well, I think it's also noteworthy that um, he says of the battle between Morgoth and Fingolfin, the elves never sing of it and the orcs never boast of it. Yes. It's like Nobody ever talks about it. Yeah. It's like, well, a lot of people say that they're both kind of ashamed, but I think it also might, well, I'm not, might, is the key word, be a bit of respect for, like, the, the fight and... Um, you know, don't want to have to go through, well, you kind of have to have been there sort of thing. <laughs> and, um... Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it is, 
it is a very interesting reference there at the end. There aren't that many things. I mean, it puts it in an interesting category because think of the little introduction that we get to the story of Baron and Luthien where he talks, I mean, this is certainly a greater and a sadder story than the death of Fingolfin. But instead of saying, this is so sad the elves never talk about this, it's like the opposite. This is the favorite song of all of the elves. This is the one they sing most and from which they derive most comfort. But the fall of Fingolfin, they don't, they don't sing about it because it's, because it's too sad. And the relationship between sort of sadness and, uh, and how often it's retold, it, it, that really does distinguish, I think, Fingolfin's fall. Um, and it's interesting to think about why that is. It's interesting to think about what is it about the story of Fingolfin and his fall that makes it different, harder, from these other really sad stories. I mean, for those of you who have a hard time with sad stories, I'm going to warn you, it's it's going to get worse. Um, Cumulatively worse until the last page. Um, Brace yourselves, (laughs) you know, uh, seriously. Um, But yet... These other stories, very rarely do we get one that's like, oh, man, too sad, not going there at all. But with Fingolfin, with Fingolfin, that's the case. And again, I think it's, it's, I don't want to spend too much time. I do do want to move on to Baron and Luthien now. But uh, but just to, for material for for further thought, I think that that is a really interesting point. The story of Baron and Luthien, as I have hinted before, is perhaps the most important story in the entire Tolkien canon. Um, barring none. I mean, this is, one could make the argument that this story is at the very heart of everything Tolkien ever wrote. Um, There are lots of ways that you can approach that, lots of ways that you can think about the significance of this story. One thing that I would point out, just sort of backing up and looking at the big picture and thinking of some of the terminology that we've seen before, um, this story is not... It's certainly not allegorical, and it's not even very closely parallel. We don't see a lot of clear typology of something like the Christian story. Sometimes people want to go there with this story because there's resurrection in it, right? And so when there's resurrection, people, you know, will get kind of, will get like the, there must be a type of Jesus twitch going on here, and that's... <laughs> Yes and no, I would say. No on the literal level. I mean, to say, like, Baron is like Jesus. Well, I mean, they do have some character traits in common, but they're really quite dissimilar in many other ways as well. Luthien, also, she is very like Jesus in some ways. But but neither of them can you peg and be like, ah, type of Christ. Done deal. Instead, though, but if you look at this story on a, on a, on a broader, through a, through a wider lens... Um, there is a deep likeness between this story and the Evangelium, the great story, as Tolkien described it. That is the Christian story. Remember how he described that the, the, when he was talking about eucatastrophe, and he describes the incarnation as the eucatastrophe of, of the created world and the resurrection as the eucatastrophe uh, of the incarnation, that it's a story that begins and ends with joy. The same can be said of the story of Baron and Luthien, and I think a really profound way. It has that same eucatastrophic shape. It, it also begins and ends with joy. You have the initial joy, the initial act of grace, which, like the incarnation, is an indescribable, almost inexplicable 
act of grace. That is, Luthien turning and placing her hand in Barron's. Um, that's unbelievable. But that's only the beginning of, like the incarnation, that's only the beginning of the story, and it gets even better. And what happens at the end with their resurrection and her joining him in his fate is the eucatastrophe of this already eucatastrophic story. I think in that general shape, we can see a significant likeness. But of course, also, again, like the Christian story, it's mingled with there is deep and abiding sorrow in it. And this is something that is, as we've seen before, very important to Tolkien. Um, Remember that third theme uh, in the music of the Ainur way back at the beginning and the sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. Um, There's a series of side notes I would like to make here. One little brief side note. Um, Sometimes... If ever I make reference to the Peter Jackson films, I will sometimes get caught up in, you know, making small complaints about things that they did differently that I don't like as much because it's always, it's easy to talk about that kind of thing. So whenever something comes up that makes me want to compliment it, I usually indulge myself for the sake of balancing things out. Uh, so here I would like to do that briefly. Hats off to, the, to Peter Jackson for the end of the movies, which everybody else hated. Um, I really like that in lots of different ways. Um, it's one of the, I think it's one of the truest things to the book that he did in all of the film. And again, true in a deep way, that is to the whole pattern and, and, and substance of Tolkien's world. The fact that that story ends or comes, you know, everything but the last 20 seconds of it or so um, in sadness uh, and loss is fundamentally true, I think, to Tolkien's story, as we'll see when we read The Lord of the Rings. But again, we see it here. The story of Baron and Luthien is really sad, and it's its sadness which gives it a lot of its beauty, which gives it a lot of its significance. Um, Now, one other note that I have to make, and I make it with some reluctance. Um, There are not very many points during our discussion of Tolkien's fiction when I'm going to make reference to a biographical detail from his life. Um, I I don't do that... Well, I, I just published an article online about why I think this is misleading and unhelpful uh, in reading Tolkien. Um, so I can send you to the link to that if you'd like to hear more about why I, I, I don't do that. Um, but in a nutshell, it's because I don't think it actually helps us understand the story better. Usually it distracts from it and keeps us from thinking about the story rather than the other way around. Um, also, I just feel kind of nosy. I mean, if it's not going to actually help me understand the story, um, I don't see why I should get in Tolkien's personal business. Um, but here I feel compelled to bring up this one point because lots of people talk about this and know about this and you should be aware of it. I would feel remiss if you emerge from this without even knowing this detail because it was a really important one. The story of Baron and Luthien in part is inspired uh, by, I mean, as Tolkien himself said several times, an event in his life. The moment uh, at the beginning of the Baron, and, not the story, of not, not the whole chapter, but the story of Baron and Luthien's interaction itself, when he comes across her in the woods and he, see, and he stands transfixed seeing her dancing beneath the trees, um, was based loosely on an incident that happened in Tolkien's life. He and his wife 
uh, met very young, tried to get married very young, but were forbidden by his, uh, by his guardian. Um, both of his parents died when he was young. His father died when he was very young. His mother died when he was about 10. Um, and his guardian forbade them to marry. Uh, they had to wait for, I think, three years before they could finally come back and get married. Um, and so he, uh, Tolkien several times has told the story of this, just this one day when, uh, when he and his later wife, Edith, were out uh, and she was dancing beneath the trees and that image of, of, of her and his love for her um, really informed a lot of things. When later on, much later on, after they'd been married for many decades, uh, she died, she predeceased him by several years. Uh, when she died, he had... Uh, he had the name Luthien carven on her tombstone. Uh, and in respect for this choice that he had made uh, in the making of her tombstone, when he died, uh, his children had the name Baron carved on his as they were buried side by side, and Baron and Luthien are on their tombstones. Um, <laughs> it's a very beautiful story. Um, but you can see already how I get uncomfortable in talking about these things, again, largely because I fear that it distracts a lot. One could ask, in a purely clinical sense now, how does it help us to know this? Um, How does this information change our understanding of this story? And I don't think it does, or at least I don't think it should. The fact that it is in some way personally relevant, eh, I don't know. I mean, the one thing that I would say that I think is interesting in general... um, and just to bring this up in anticipation, because I know this is an issue that people often come back to, especially reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, especially The Hobbit, as there are absolutely no female characters of any... You'll never see two X chromosomes in one place uh, in, the, in the entire length and breadth of The Hobbit. Uh, so um, so I, I, the, the one thing that I do think it is relevant is to this question of uh, Tolkien's depiction of women. Um, Tolkien had a wonderful relationship with his wife and his daughter. Um, I don't, you know, there are some people who will leap to a conclusion and say, since he, you know, doesn't depict women very much at all, and, you know, it's, it's mostly a story about men, as it in the case of The Hobbit, exclusively a story about men, um, you know, that therefore, you know, he is sort of, you know, chauvinist in various traditional ways. And I, I don't believe this to be the case. Um, but I do think, uh, from uh, everything that I know of Tolkien's life, that he was in general... There's a reason why the majority of the women uh, in a lot of his stories are great, gracious, uh, sometimes distant, but almost always superior beings. Um, He... I don't know. I said, I, 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 I really hate going here. And this is, again, probably the last time this whole semester that I will go here. Uh, but I, but I, but I, said, I, I feel like I, I couldn't not go here. Um, one pattern that you will notice in Baron and Luthien is the archetypal moment of this, but there are many other examples. Um, most of the time, almost all of the time, marriages especially marriages of great significance, uh, are acts of grace, usually even inexplicable uh, and deeply profound grace by the woman towards the man. 
Um, that's, that is a pattern. It's a very stable pattern. I'm not saying there are no examples, but men almost always marry up in Tolkien um, and should be grateful. <laughs> uh, and, and the good men in Tolkien have a proper sense of, the, of, of, of how grateful they should be uh, for the grace bestowed upon them uh, by their wives, who are usually greater than they, uh, and, and who are condescending in that good, secure, humble way that the Queen of Fairy condescends to Smith. Um, okay, so I've... There, there are lots and lots of examples. This is the second one that we've seen, right? What's the other? Yeah, Melian and Thingol. And there's a clear parallel there. And of course, um, this is one of the ways later on in which the story of Aragorn and Arwen in The Lord of the Rings is an explicit recapitulation of the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, in fact, I'm just going to mention this now because by the time we get to this, it will be the last day of class and we'll probably be running out of time. Uh, in the appendix, in Appendix A of The Return of the King, the little snippet that I asked you to read, the snippet that I've asked you to read out of Appendix A for the last day of class is the story, the, the backstory of the meeting of Aragorn and Arwen. Um, and as you will read there, they meet when Aragorn one day is wandering uh, and he's, think- he's just been singing the song of Baron and Luthien. He's just been thinking about their story. And he comes across for the first time Arwen in the woods. And he thinks that he's hallucinating, that he's, you know, he had been singing about Baron and Luthien and that the story has sort of come alive before him. And he thinks like she is Luthien or a representation of Luthien. So he sees her and, and cries and says, Tenuviel, Tenuviel. And she's like, why are you calling me that? Uh, <laughs> And in my favorite moment, he's like, he's like, oh, I was thinking, I was singing Baron and Luthien. I thought you were Luthien. And, and Arwen says, I get that a lot. <laughs> Seriously, go and read it. It is awesome. It's like she doesn't say it in exactly those words, but that's, the, that's exactly what she says. Anyway, uh, so the, the, it's not just a general parallel. I mean, they are like, the, they, they are deliberately a, a recalling of this story. Um, Moving on. <laughs> Tell me what... I, there are a bunch of things that I would like to draw attention to in the Baron and Luthien story, but I'm interested in hearing what you guys found, found interesting. What, what, what really struck you about this story? Again, thinking with the little intro we get at the beginning, you know, we're told this is, this is one of the, this is the greatest... This, you know, for the elves, the most important story. Why? What is it about this story, Aaron? We were just curious. How do you pronounce the wolfhound's name? Huan? Juan? Juan, yes. Yeah, Juan. It's Spanish, like Juan. No, it's not Juan. Two syllables. Two, there's an accent over the... Two, two syllables, two syllables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no problem. Uh, the fact that the story um, follows a lot of, like, characteristically fairy ish medieval constructions. Mm-hmm. Um, the father builds a tower in order to protect Luthien. Except the tower is a living tree. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And, um, Very elvish tower. You know, when, when, when elvish fathers try and con- constrain their daughters and prevent them from marrying, they don't build towers. They, they use really big trees. But I say, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And um, Theron has to, you know, go about this impossible task in order to earn her hand in marriage. Um, except the, the, the thing that makes this story different is that um, everything they go through, they go through together. That Luthien is constantly pursuing Baron, just as he pursues her. Yes, yes, good. This is, um, it is an aggressive departure 
from the passive female locked up and man undergoing all trial after trial until finally he you know, achieves the kiss of love at the end and they live happily ever after. Um, yes, very, very much unlike that. I mean, there's that moment, that wonderful moment um, where Baron is trying, after, they, after she escapes and rescues him and then he's trying to bring her back home. Right? It's like, oh, it's time for me to go off to Thangorodrim by myself. And she says, you have two choices. Right, you can either forget your vow and go wandering off homeless, uh, or you can go into darkness and pursue. But on either road, I am going to accompany you. Um, and and he does this twice. So he tries to leave her again after the little run-in with Kelgorm and Kurafin, and he goes off and he sings that song, and then she comes after him and is like, "Dude, I meant it. You know, you, you are totally not getting rid of me." Um, and I agree. I think that that is a really important point. And the point here is not. It's not just. An interesting point in, you know, a woman's equality kind of sense. It's a really important element of this story. The bond between them, unity and self-sacrifice, holding together uh, and supporting each other, no matter what, that is always, that is hugely important. There is a recapitulation in this story, which should remind us of an earlier moment. Um, we, we, We get another one of those echoes. When Luthien arrives at the fortress, which was called Minas Tirith, when, fin, when, when, when Minas Tirith, of course, just means the Tower of Guard. It's a fairly generic name, which is why it gets used. It's not the only reason why it gets used again. It's in memory of this fortress. But, um, but anyway, it was Minas Tirith and is now tolling Gaurahoth when Sauron takes it over and makes it evil. Um, anyway, when, when Luthien arrives and Baron's in the dungeon, how does she know he's there? How does she find him? Singing. She sings, he, he, she sings and he recognizes her song. And so he sings in response. And by his, so, his song in response, she knows that he's there and finds him. We should be remembering what from earlier in the story? The songs of the honor. Whenever singing happens, which of course is pretty frequently, we should never totally forget the music of the Ainur because that's the important framework of the whole thing. But there's a specific incident which is parallel to this from earlier in the story. Singing and the response. Does that have Thingol from, from Melian? I don't like the uh, When Thingol finds Melian, she is singing and the, night- the nightingales are singing around her, um, as they are around Luthien, which is why he calls her Tenuvio, which means nightingale. Um, but it's, 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 it's not the precise parallel I'm thinking of. Um, I was thinking of Barda because she hears everything. There are ways in which Luthien is sort of Varda-like, or perhaps one could say even more, um, one could say even more generally that the relationship between Baron and Luthien as the relationship between any pairs like that echo the relationship between Manwe and Varda and the kind of, to use a really crass word, the kind of team that they are, you know, the, the kind of unity that they have together as, uh, as a joined couple. Um, we can see in some ways, again, not just Baron and Luthien, but almost any good <laughs> couple in Tolkien kind of reflecting that. Kelly? Um, is it that her singing finally breaks the enchantment of silence that's been over him when he sees her dancing in the, under, on the grass under the sea? That's like it. Again, not the one that I'm thinking of. That, that, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a short incident that you might have forgotten. After the Noldor arrive in Beleriand, you may remember, and it's after Feanor is dead, and Mithros, Feanor's eldest son, is now 
uh, running things. You remember this? He gets captured by Morgoth and stapled to the wall. Remember, he gets, they, they put him up on Thangoradrim and they, they stay, like, like put, a, put a metal staple uh, on his right arm. And Fingen goes to find him. And this is how the, 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 Noldor, the families of the Noldor are reunited after that uh, you know, genuinely awkward grinding ice incident and ship burning thing. Oh, yes, we abandon you to your death. Um, but everybody gets past this, right? And thanks to the... Uh, in that moment, when Fingen is hunting for Mithros and he can't find him, so he like whips out his harp because, hey... Why go anywhere without your harp? Whips out his harp and, he's, harp and he starts singing a song of Valinor. And Mithros, who is up above his head and he doesn't, you know, he can't see him, starts singing in response while stapled to the wall, right? And that's how Fingen finds him and goes and rescues him and cuts off his hand, right? Um, well, most of his arm, actually. And he ends up fighting, you know, learning to wield sword with his left hand more deadly than his right had been. Uh, but anyway... That's the moment specifically, which is a very close parallel to this one, where you're, they're finding someone who is a captive, uh, and by the echoing of the singing, uh, they, they find them. Um, but again, there, notice the themes that those two have in parallel. Um, I said last time, we will see lots of these echoes, lots of these parallels, lots of these little recapitulations of stories again and again and again through the Silmarillion and on into the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. And what I want you to be thinking about when we see those is, what do these things have in common? What is the nature of the particular motif that's being repeated in, you know, that was being repeated in the music and then later in the vision and finally in history as it is unfolding through the course of these stories? And there are some clear principles that we can see here, right? What do these two incidents have in common? The rescue of Baron by Luthien and the rescue of Mithros by Fingen. Jordan? One thing that just occurred to me is that history is the music of the Aino. It's like a chorus or a harmony that is being sung. Exactly. A repeating refrain. Exactly. Exactly. And what is that... What does it do? What does it point to? Kelly? Um, it seems that the, the people who are in opposition are often able to, you know, repair the hurt between them by joining in a duet. Yes. So yes. Remember, harmony is the fundamental principle, right? Uh, the, the story of the music is harmony versus discord. Harmony, not unison. Remember the difference there. Unison is Melkor. Mel- Melkor does unison. The, 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 Iluvatar doesn't do unison. Um, but harmony, yes, working together, those separate parts working together. Um, yeah, I don't, don't want to use the word team or teamwork because it's so crass and shallow, and that's way too technical and disturbing. But, uh, but no, it's union, joining, self-sacrifice, um, harmony. And not just harmony of the two of them, uh, certainly with Fingen and Mithros, this was the moment of the, the res- restoration of harmony, at least partial restoration of harmony, between two peoples, right? Or at least two families, the followers of, of Fingolfin and the well, Fingolfin and his followers, uh, and the follow and the, 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 the people of Feanor. Baron and Luthien's union, um, this was all you will remember we're talking about as a consequence of that observation about the two of them staying together and, and Luthien being apart 
of his quest. It's his quest. Right? I mean, it's his vow. It's his quest. You know, she is not in any... Not only is she not bound to go on it, she's been forbidden to go on it, right? I mean, she's, she's defying prohibitions in order to accompany him, but her insistence, this is them together. Um, and so this, when she is rescuing him, this is the moment when Luthien kind of hijacks that story. Baron's story was going to be a tragic story. Remember, Baron's story was supposed to be a tragic story. She, he gets sent to fetch the Silmaril, not centrally, because Thingol is awful fond of Silmarils and would rather like to have one. Now, that turns out to be true, but that's not the primary reason. He sends him after a Silmaril. Why? Because he wants him dead. He wants him dead. And what better way, right? Steal from Morgoth, the thing that he always wears on his person and values more than anything in the world. I mean, it's, I mean and Melian perceives this. Oh, king, you have devised cunning counsel. Right? And everyone sees through this right away. They're like, oh, clever Thingol. Right? <laughs> you promise not to kill him, but you're going to arrange to have him dead. Oh, that's strong work there. Uh, of course, Melian points out, this is going to backfire pretty badly. Right? And not just because she knows the future. No, remember what she emphasizes to him. You have doomed either your daughter or yourself. This cannot end well. And that clearly he's not considering. Right? What is Thingol's problem? Melian's commentary emphasizes that he has screwed up. Right? You have devised cunning counsel, but you have because of what you just decreed, doom is now definitely going to happen. One kind of one kind of horrible outcome or the other is now guaranteed thanks to you. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Why? What did he do wrong? What is sort of the heart of Thingol's problem? What do you think? Anyone else have thoughts who hasn't? Yeah, Tony? Is it because of the oath? Uh, Fanor swore that anyone who desires someone else for themselves, and even though he doesn't necessarily really want the Silmarill, he is just sort of, just, yeah, bearing dead, he sort of stirred up the oath. Yeah, anyone who even names them in desire gets in trouble because of the oath of Feanor. That is the mechanism by which doom is going to come to him. Right? I mean, if you think of the two options, right? That is, if he succeeds in killing Baron, he's doomed Luthien, Melian is saying. The dooming of himself is clearly the contingency of if, against all odds, it succeeds. If Baron brings back, you know, in the highly unlikely event of Baron coming home with the Silmaril... Now you're screwed, and it is because of the, the oath of Feanor that Thingol is going to be screwed if, if a Silmaril comes back. And also, I mean, we're, and the, the, you know, the narrator says at that moment that by doing this, by sending Baron after the Silmaril, he involves himself in the curse of the Noldor. Remember, I mean, the Sindar, I mean, they weren't there at the Kinslaying, right? They, they, they're not, they don't have that Paul that acts upon them kind of like original sin, as we discussed in the last class. Um, they don't have that until now, right? By, by, bringing them, by bringing the Sindar and Doriath in general into the story of the Silmaril, he's kind of screwed things up. But I want to take a step back further, too, thinking about his motivations. What drives him? Where can we see his heart going wrong? What is sort of the essential moral mistake that he is making here? Josh? I'd say that he's jealous because he doesn't really want to give up his daughter or 
Yeah, good. Who's he like? Can we think back to a parallel, parallel case? Someone who screws up in a similar kind of way? I agree. His, he is, uh, jealous is exactly the right word. Um, that is in the classic medieval sense of jealousy, to protect jealously something, to, to not want to share something, right? In the same way that God is a jealous God in the Old Testament, not because he wants other people's stuff, but because he won't share. You know, he says to the Israelites, I am your God and you are my people and I am a jealous God. I'm not going to share you with any other gods, right? Um, Thingol is jealous of Luthien, his daughter. He doesn't want to share her with Baron. But... But more on that, why is that a problem? And as I said, who had a similar kind of problem? Ian? It's like Feanor and he's loving too greedily. Yes, good. It's just as when Feanor turns and loves the Silmarils with a greedy love. Loving the Silmarils, perfectly fine. Loving Luthien, perfectly fine. Not only because she's his daughter, so therefore he should regard her and he should love her, but also because of who she is. She is genuinely precious. She is the most beautiful of the children of Iluvatar. She is great. She should be protected. She should be cherished. She should be valued. She is valuable. But in doing this, he's loving her with a greedy love. Because she chose Baron. Remember the context here. This is not just some, some dude coming in and saying, hey, uh, give me your daughter, man. Right? We get that later on in this story. Right? We get a Kelligorm does that. Hi, I have your daughter in custody because, you know, I kidnapped her, so I'd like to enter into marriage negotiations. I'm sure we can work out terms. That's the, you know, had Baron approached him that way, his response would have been perfectly justified. But when he and Luthien come in hand in hand, remember, he, uh, Thingol tries to drag Baron in like a prisoner, and Luthien sets him free and escorts him before Thingol's throne. So what he's doing is not an appropriate love of her. It's actually an insult to her. He's not, it's, his problem is not in valuing her too much. It's valuing her not enough. But again, it is value, value, loving her with the wrong kind of love, loving her possessively, loving her greedily, not as he should. And that almost diminishes her, kind of like or not sharing the Silmarils, diminish the Silmarils because he wasn't making them so they could not reform, return to their former glory as the trees. Yes. Blocking her away and being like, okay, no, you don't have the right to choose. Exactly, exactly. And notice, just as when Feanor decided that he's going to deny the sight of the Silmarils to the Valar and everyone else at the Great Feast, and so he leaves them back home at Formanos all locked up, that's when he loses them, right? Because that's when, that's when Morgoth breaks in and steals them. So too... When Thingol says, I'm not going to share Luthien with this man and I'm going to lock her up in the tree right, and hide her away, that's when he loses her too. And now again, the ages of these stories are different and you know, they're not exactly the same. But, we, but that same, I think that that's a really important parallel, a really important dynamic there. We can see what's going wrong with him. There, and also, notice the, the pride, the arrogance that's creeping in there too. Um, he looks down on Baron because he's a man. And he's calling him names, and Baron gets a little chippy in response, right? Appropriately so. Marta? Well, we kind of see this guy's behavior before this story because pretty much all of um, the world 
Yes. 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 <laughs> I won't even let any men of any kind in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've gotten out of the habit of uh, stopping class after 50 minutes, so uh, I should let you go. We're five minutes late. We'll come back at the beginning of next time to say a few more things about Baron and Luthien, and then we'll move on to the most tragic but beautiful portion of the Silmarillion, the Nirnath Arnoidiad, and the story of Turin Turambar. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>